G'day mate, 40 here. So, I don't know if you remember, it might have been before your time, but discriminating used to be the mark of a lady and a gentleman. Discrimination used to be thought of as a good thing. I, I guess that changed with the, the civil rights revolution, starting about 1965. But you used to show how much you respected by someone, someone by saying that uh, they were discriminating. That was widely considered a good thing. I mean, if you had a daughter, right, would you or would you not want her to be discriminating with her favors? Would you, you would you want daughter. her just, you know, sharing them with, with anyone, just willy-nilly? Like any bloke who wanted to have a go, you thought, oh yeah, no worries. You know, you should, you can't be racist. You can't be discriminatory can't be can't be bigoted you can't you know be prejudiced against out groups you have to just offer up your favors to anyone who wants it well why should a small businessman be any different right, let's say you're an architect and some satanic lodge comes along and wants you to design their new satanic lodge why sh you sh should you not have the ability to say heck no no i want nothing to do with your perversion let's say that there's some kind of sexual perversion or religious perversion or anything that you just find distasteful coming along and, and demands that you offer your services, why shouldn't you get to say no? J just as you'd want your daughter to be able to say no. By the way, if you are at all discriminating with whom you have children, you are practicing eugenics. Very scary eugenics. Now, the customer, he can discriminate you against you on any basis. He may not like your race. He may not like your religion. He may not like your politics. He may not like the beady look in your eyes, right? He gets to discriminate against you, no worries. But you, you can't discriminate against the most repellent people out there on the basis of protected personalities. All right, you apply for a job. Your employer can decide not to hire you because they don't like your politics. They don't like how you practice your religion. They don't like the smell of you. They don't like the look of you. They don't like your personality. They don't like how you dress. They don't like your favorite football team, right? They're able to do all those forms of discrimination completely legally. But God forbid, if they want to maintain, say, a Christmas Christian atmosphere in the workplace or a traditional Jewish atmosphere in the workplace, and they don't want to, uh, say, hire someone who's, who's out as a, a homosexual or as a transsexual or someone who's you know living a, a lifestyle that traditional Christians and traditional Jews would find absolutely repellent, not allowed to do that all right that's absolutely insane if you believe in in private property right then you've got to be absolutely appalled by civil rights legislation which has placed significant restrictions on how you can use your private property so if your grandma wants to rent a room to a lodger she's not allowed to discriminate on the basis of, of race or, or religion or sexual orientation so theoretically she has to be just as open to renting her room to someone from an outgroup, from an outgroup that she finds repellent, right? Your grandma, your kids, right? Under civil rights thinking, they were routinely bused to dangerous inner city schools while kids traumatized by years in dangerous inner city schools were, were bused to, you know, more select locations where they would then, you know, terrorize and, and bully you know, kids from uh, suburbia. So the same people who did that awful school busing experiment for 10 years, creating havoc in, in American life and creating great damage to American public schools, 
Those are the same type of people who run almost all our institutions today and are still hectoring us. And I'll be honest, I, I think overall these type of people did a better job than conservatives with regard to COVID. But uh, overall, I think like civil rights has been an absolute disaster. If you believe in freedom of association, right, you should be appalled by civil rights legislation. If you think that we're overly litigious as a society, you should be appalled by civil rights legislation. If you believe that uh, neighborhoods have been decimated and we've got too much government intrusion into our private lives, you should be absolutely appalled by civil rights legislation since 1965. If you are dismayed by decreasing social trust and social cohesion, you should be absolutely appalled and disgusted and hate with a burning, passionate hatred civil rights legislation, which has made life more litigious, which has brought the government into more and more personal affairs. So think about the people of South Boston. All right. So this is a dominantly white community and kids from dangerous inner city schools were bussed into their neighborhood and they were forced to accept these kids into their schools. These kids then went on to commit astronomical amounts of crime and bullying and, and torture and rape, all sorts of awful things. And the people of South Boston, they weren't even allowed to protest, right? Freedom of association was curtailed for them. They had 16-hour, 24-hour day, massive police presence, right? So they couldn't even, you know, fight back to save their kids. So it used to be that virtually everyone in South Boston sent their kids to public school. Within a, a year or two of this public, you know, school busing nonsense, only about 20% of sent their kids to uh, public school. So if you think it's a good thing that your daughter should be discriminating upon whom she distributes her favors, why should not the businessman, why should you not be with, with renting, with, with hiring? Why should you not get to achieve the, the most cohesive, the most you know, easygoing, the most relaxed, uh, the most formidable workforce that you want for your business, for your neighborhood, for your associations, right? If you just want to be able to get together solely with guys and not have Sheila's around, all right, why, why should you not be allowed to do that? Well, the reason is the massive amounts of civil rights legislation. So I've been rereading Christopher Cordwell's great book, The Age of Entitlement. So prior to the 1960s, right, slavery and race were not at the central concept in, in our country's understanding of itself, right? For almost all of America's history, you know, racial conflict was, you know, seen as a minor part of a larger story about uh, us building a constitutional republic, right? After the 1960s, our constitution, our constitutional republic, is just some, you know, mere set of tools for resolving these larger conflicts about race and, and human rights and installing, you know, some massive human rights, civil rights legislation uh, regime, right, backed up by the full power and force of the federal government to determine the most intimate parts of your life, right? So if the 1960s were a revolutionary time, the core of the revolution was race, right? World War II had knit the country together. Right. We were never more unified than we were in the late 1940s, 1950s, into the 1960s. We never had higher social trust. We never had more cohesion. We never had more of a sense of being united with our fellow Americans. We had you know, relatively even dist distribution of income. Right? We were a powerfully bonded country. And then civil rights legislation came around in 1964, 
and uh, it was meant to undo all the you know bad things of, of Jim Crow. So it banned racial discrimination in voting booths in hotels, restaurants, theaters, public facilities, from libraries to swimming pools to bathroom and public schools. All right, sounds great on the surface. In practice, sometimes being unable to discriminate means the destruction of public spaces, means the destruction of public facilities, means the destruction of private places and private spaces and private facilities. All right, civil rights legislation gave the federal government absolute power to reform and abolish institutions that stood in the way of their mission of racial equality, right? We got the massive expansion of the Federal Civil Rights Commission, right? Any government bureaucratic institution got massive scrutiny now from the Civil Rights Commission. If you got any government money, right, you had to lay out your hiring practices for all companies with more than 15 employees. You got the equal up Employment Opportunity Commission had the power to file lawsuits, conduct investigations, order redress, right? So this act incentivized bureaucrats and lawyers and intellectuals and political agitators to become the eyes and the ears and the foot soldiers of civil rights enforcement. And so more and more of our institutions and more and more of our lives are being brought to the heel of civil rights industrial complex. Right, all of our institutions now operate under the heel of the civil rights industrial complex. And the grounds for signing someone guilty of discrimination just keeps increasing and expanding and expanding when discrimination is a good thing. Right? You should be discriminating. Right? So we just have this ever expansion of government bureaucracies, government power, and civil rights have transformed the company country, not just constitutionally. We have a effectively argues Christopher Caldwell replaced the former constitution that we had with a new constitution, which is the civil rights legislation. And that has led to the country being completely transformed culturally and demographically. It's been the mightiest instrument of domestic enforcement the country has ever undertaken. It's the largest undertaking of any kind in American history. It has cost trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars. And it has not made any significant difference in the type of uh, between-group life achievement, educational achievement gaps that would be predicted by uh, IQ scores between groups, right? We spent trillions of dollars, haven't been able to reduce the gap at all, right? We, we've spent enormous energy, enormous resources, trillions of dollars, and f for that, we have destroyed social trust, social cohesion. We've made our country a more litigious place, and we have reduced the rights and values of freedom of association and of, of private property. So you're wondering, like, how can we fight back against this craziness? I think the best thing you can do is join Prager Force. Do we have time for this? We do. Okay, good. Do you mind if I go in a little bit to Jane Eyre? Do I mind? <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> if you told me you, you have the Bronx phone book, I would be interested in your insight. Well, yeah, that's true. You have theories about everything, and you're interested in everything. Right. And I think you'll really like this. So, oh, there goes my pen. Whatever. Thank God I have an, another one, but it's not fountain pen. I'm sorry. Well, you know what it is? I don't want to lose it. That's why I don't carry it around with me. Well, there is a major disadvantage built into being a woman. You don't have pockets. Yes, that is true. And your purse is like a bottomless pit. Well, I'm of... well aware, yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. How, how do I possibly explain how much I love this book? Um, it's it's just amazing. It's, it's digestible. What, how much have you read of it? I've read about a little under a half, half of it. 
And you're, you're loving it. Loving it. I'm actually shocked. Is it shocked. one of the greatest books It's one of the read. greatest books I've ever read, and I'm actually shocked that I love it so much. Because I like reading, but you know, some old books, even if I'm enjoying them, they can be hard. Sitting and reading this, it's easy. It's so enriching, and I'm just captured. I'm just, I can't wait to read what it What is it a story day. about? It's a story about Jane Eyre, who was born um, an orphan. She had to go live with her aunt and her mean cousins. Who in were, England? In England, they, who were mean to her. They, then she was sent away to an orphanage because she just could no longer live with those evil cousins. And then she becomes a governess. That's a really footnote. So she marries. Um, yes, but you're not supposed to know that. Uh-huh. That's a little giving giving it away. Okay. It's a love story. It's it's a, it's a story about. It's just a story about human nature and about. So, she describes people so brilliantly. Do you think she, the author, if I were to ask her, do you think human nature is basically good? What would she answer? Oh my god, Dennis. Oh my god. I, I just okay. Now I'm really determined to get you to read this. She would say no. Exactly. She, this book, you know what's so amazing I, about I this book? I knew that. It, it couldn't be a good book if she thought This that. is the Bible in a fiction book. Hmm. This is what I love about Jane Eyre, and this is what I love about The Scarlet Letter, which I have on my set. It's, it's not that the Bible isn't fun. I honestly think the Bible is, is riveting, but, but this, is, this is the Bible in story form. This is what fiction should be. Be entertained, but also have good values inculcated in you. And you know what's also amazing about Charlotte Bronte, who, by the way, died at the age of 36. She was pregnant when she died. She wrote this book, among others, before she wow. died. I mean, she only lived 36 years. And this woman has such insight into people. She, she describes... Was she a best-selling author when she was alive? I don't know. I don't know. But when I go to London in a few months, was, I'm, curious. I'm visiting her home. I'm going to go to her home. I'm going to go to her church. I'm a Charlotte Bronte fangirl now. Yeah. I, I, I really can't impart to you. So what were you going to say before? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So quickly, I'm going to read this one example of how this is a Judeo-Christian book, and then I'm going to get to the quote that I want to get to. I think this, this, this book has the best one-sentence case for religion ever written. With this, so it's from this girl at the orphanage. Her name is Helen Burns, and she's mistreated by a teacher. And she's, very, she's a very— Okay. I'm a tad, tad suspicious of—this uh, is a very Judeo-Christian book. Just a tad suspicious here. And the other thing, Julie Julie Hartman is so pro-religion, but she doesn't actually practice any religion. And uh, Dennis Prager, very pro-religion, but whatever religion he practices is not recognizable to you know almost any rabbi or any almost any traditional practitioner of Judaism. Just like Jordan Peterson, very pro-Christianity, but he doesn't practice any recognizable form of Christianity and is bored out of his mind when he actually goes to church. Very pious young woman. She's 14 years old. The teacher humiliates her, is awful to her, makes her stand on a stool in front of the whole class. Jane Eyre says to Helen, how do you maintain your composure? And she says that it is your duty. I can't find the quote right here, but, but basically she says it's your duty to, to bear your burden gracefully. But then here she says, she's talking about her religion, and this is the one sentence. She goes, with this creed, I can so clearly distinguish the criminal and his crime. I can so sincerely forgive the first while I abhor the last. With this creed, revenge never worries my heart. Degre- degradation never too deeply disgusts me. Injustice never crushes me too low. I live in calm looking to the end. Okay, so any connection between those values and those abilities and being religious is exceedingly weak. Overall, in my life experience, I don't find religious people by a significant margin if any margin at all, are more likely to have the values just cited. So I don't know what your life experience is. That's my life experience. I don't find that religious people are more likely to appropriately forgive. I don't find that uh, religious people are more likely to have moral clarity. I, I don't find that religious people are more likely to be ethical and upstanding. That's just my experience. That is religion. That is what religion can provide for you. It doesn't mean you don't fight against evil. Of course you should fight against evil. But when you have the, the, the gift of religion, it's true. Revenge doesn't worry you. Degration never too deeply disgusts you. And injustice never crushes you too low. You always have a reason to carry on. Okay. I'm oh, sorry. Do you want to react? Yeah. Well, I have a lot to say about it, actually. So my, my case for religion is overwhelmingly the moral case, as you well know. Right. Okay. Nevertheless, I do make the point, and that's beautifully put. 
secularism is hopeless by definition. That really, yeah. All secularism means is the absence of religion. So most people should get their meaning and purpose and passion in life from their family, right? Whether they're religious or not. Now there are probably some significant advantages to building a family if you're religious. That's the reason that they talk about hope so much. I, I mentioned this ironically on my on my radio show just recently. The motto of the Barack Obama campaign was hope and change. Mm -hmm. And at the time I was saying, hope, what the hell are you talking about? We're, we live in a hopeless country, the richest country in the history of the world, more opportunity for more people than any place ever ever uh, devised, more freedom than any place ever created. We need hope. What are you talking about? We're, we're not living in, in, in impoverished Ghana or something. Right. What are you talking about? But then I realized they're all secular. And, and there is no hope. You die, folks, and that's it for oblivion. Really? Uh, because they're secular, they, they have no no hope? I, I don't think that that's what's going on. Hope and change just feels good. When you listen to Barack Obama, it feels good. Right? The substance of what he says is usually quite inconsequential, but it's sending out a vibe. Just like, uh, what, what's that movie, A Love Story? Right, and there's a line in there, love means never having to say you're sorry. Uh, on the face of it, it's just absolutely ridiculous saying. It's not a, a good principle for life, but it's a, a vibe. Uh, the John Lennon song, Imagine, is a beautiful, moving song, even if all the words in it and all the ideas in it are ridiculous. So you can try to interpret things on some kind of literal level, but what's really going on is that there's a certain kind of energy or a certain kind of you know emotion that's released by by digital symbols, words, along with music and other cues. In for eternity. And whatever you did in this world, in the final analysis, for the vast majority of people won't matter any more than you know what your great-grandparents did. Just the way it is, let's be realistic. You want hope? The only hopeful place in the world is in religion. And that's, that's, that's the point. It well, if uh, you care about your kids, care about your family, care about your friends, care about your community, care about... Your extended family care about uh, whatever commitments, uh, values, things that you, you know, believe in strongly. Your, your pursuits, your your talents, your your profession, your education. All right, the the pursuit of those things or enabling other people to succeed should also bring you some hope. It it's the perfect response because it it synopsizes the synopsizes the point that I wanted to make. I feel like what religion does is it takes circumstances that you can and will encounter in your life and it gives you a prescription or a way forward with how to deal with them. I, I don't know. In, in my life experience, I don't see religious people as being significantly better place to deal with life's adversities. Mildly better placed. Yeah, I, I could, I could uh, buy into that. But remember, if religion is the awesome thing that, that Julie and Dennis and John Peterson say it is, why don't they practice any recognizable form of religion? They don't. Any recognizable form of religion is boring to them. All right, that's just something that you proles do. You know, they want to wrestle with the big ideas. They don't actually want to participate in an organized religion. When, in, when injustice or a stroke of bad luck or bad treatment afflicts a leftist, what is their worldview that they can plug it into? I don't know. With religion, there's a you know there's there's a there's a great prescribed worldview. It's you know deal with this gracefully. Try yeah, to find it as much as you can. Their worldview ultimately is destroy the present world. It'll get better. So here's this.
really that that's that's the non-religious worldview destroy the, the present world it, it will get better and i don't know about you but i wouldn't say that grace is is a distinguishing characteristic of religious people it's a distinguishing characteristic of a small number of religious people and a small number of secular people but it isn't some kind of overriding characteristic of religious people in my life experience line this this shows you how religion offers a prescription for the woes of life i feel like you could so draw there's a another quote. There's a, oh, the, the whole book is filled no with no quotes. i know I'm that but i mean about myself. religion yeah yeah oh oh the whole book is quotes about religion oh, the whole dialogue it's all religion without ever saying god mm -hmm. which is i think by the way okay so england has not been a, a religious country since the 16th century it, it, it's perhaps the, the first secular country on earth England got, got scared by the various religious wars going on in, in Europe and uh, being enthusiastic and passionate about your religion is being looked down upon, severely frowned upon, and frequently actively discriminated against to the point of putting your life at risk in England basically since the 16th century, since Henry VIII. So Jane Eyre and uh, many of the, the great novels of... Uh, the English language and the English tradition, right? They come out of a overwhelmingly far more secular country than almost any other country on earth at the time. Play a great tactic because sometimes it can be too, too forced on people. So it's a dialogue between Mr. Rochester, who's Jane's lover, or not not at this point in the book, but the person who Jane's in love with, and Jane. And they're getting to know each other. And, and Mr. Rochester is talking about uh, decisions in his life where he could have he, he could have done better. And um, he said, I should have been superior to my circumstances. Even that one line, superior to your circumstances. Who even talks like that anymore? Who even thinks that way? Can you imagine someone my age thinking I can be superior <laughs> to my circumstances? Brilliant. Well, uh, guess what? We all wish that we were superior to our situations. But uh, in the end, the situation is the boss. Now, you can be more or less adaptive to your situation. And you can have some situations where you can rise above. But uh, in general, we are going to be largely products of situation and circumstance. Isn't it brilliant? This is no, no, no. Your insight. There's is so many. Oh, my insight. Who, who, who would no like one. That? No one thinks that, that you think that your circumstances prescribe your whole life. There's no. There's. You can't even conceive of being superior right. to your circumstances. I'm telling you, the book is scattered with treasures like this. He says, "When fate wronged me, I had not the wisdom to remain cool. I turned desperate, and then I degenerated." And then he's talking about how he has remorse and guilt for things. And he says, you know, Miss Eyre, remorse is the... Okay, so do you think, honestly think that if, like, Julie Hartman suffered a disheartening series of humiliations, and if uh, Dennis Prager suffered a disheartening series of humiliations, uh, where, like, you know, very damaging private information came out about them, and they just felt ripped apart, that they would just be able to go on and, and rise above their circumstances, you know, undeterred, Right. Uh, Julie Hartman, Dennis Prager, Luke Ford, everybody is profoundly affected by the situation that they find themselves in. Now, you can be more or less adapted to it. You can strive to rise above with you know varying degrees of effect. You never get to graduate from reality. Meaning you never get to graduate from circumstance. Circumstances and situations are part and parcel of reality. You never get to graduate from reality into a fantasy world where you're always just going to rise above your circumstance. You'll always be moving in and out of four stages in life, right? There will always be a time when you are helpless. Your back goes out. You, you get really sick. Uh, you know, something awful happens to you. You know, some disabling uh, physical or mental problem, right? We all will have moments when we're helpless. We will all have moments where we feel lonely and lost and feel small in a big world. 
we all will have moments where we feel like we're, we're developing mastery and we'll all have moments where we feel, you know, grandiose and, you know, much bigger and more important and more capable than, than we really are. But we never get to graduate from this spiral staircase of life, right? We're, we're not just locked in an iron cage together. We're locked in an iron cage together with a spiral staircase and we'll always be moving in and out of any of these four circumstances. And you never get to graduate so that uh, you only live in mastery. Now, whatever circumstance you're in, usually you can't work on developing mastery. So that's a, a good thing to do, but you never get to graduate from the threat of vulnerability. The poison of life. And Jane Eyre responds, repentance is said to be its cure, sir. Now, before I continue, just that, look at this. He's saying remorse is the poison of life. Jane Eyre is saying repentance is said to be its cure. Remorse, problem, repentance, prescription. That's religion. You should write a commentary on Jane Eyre. Oh, t And... Yeah, that's that's an element of religion. You could just as well say that's psychology, that's therapy, that's twelve step work, you know, that's Buddhism. All right. So religion contains an element of what she's talking about here, but so do twenty other modes of living. And it's not like uh, religious people just particularly embody the the values that she is promoting here. Totally. I'm not kidding. But that's what that's that's what that's religion right. does for you. Yeah, yes. Because in but like that that's what religion does for a minority of its practitioners. That's what counseling does for a minority of counselees. That's what twelve step work does for people who take twelve step work seriously. And I'm sure there are other other things that you can do that might bring about the kind of emotionally corrective experience that enables you to be more adaptive to life. Think about it. when you have remorse on, on the left. I don't know if they do have remorse. Seriously, I don't, I don't know if some leftists have remorse. I mean, that's insane to think that, oh, leftists, because they experience life differently from me. You know, I, I can't imagine that they have these normal human emotions. Of course, leftists experience just as much remorse as people on the right. right? If you prick a leftist, does he not bleed? Leftists cry. Everybody hurts, bro. Everybody feels sad. Virtually everybody cries at times. What it, what it, what's the worldview that they put it through to make themselves better? Is there one? Right. Well, okay, what is the, uh, the left-wing worldview to make themselves better? Well, overwhelmingly, psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists, teachers social workers, people in the nurturing and helping professions are on the left. So they have various worldviews you know, under the rubric of a left-wing worldview that is dedicated to nurturing people and helping them to stay safe. And overall, they did a better job with regard to COVID than did, than did the right. So I, I find, you know, sometimes the, the Karen attitude, the, uh, the, you know, anti-competition attitude, uh, just, you know, the, the overwhelming left-wing orientation of teachers, social workers, therapists, counselors, uh, psychologists, psychiatrists. It certainly gets on my nerves and, and grates at me at times, but I, I don't deny that they are you know, capable of developing a worldview that promotes you know, some more effective adaptation to life and uh, helps people out. Well, make yourself better. They don't think in terms that, that's my old line. You know, you, it's a, all the problems of your life don't come from you. They come from your parents and from from America. Life life is so hard. Life presents you with so many challenges. And okay, so most therapists, most psychiatrists, most psychologists are on the left. Do you really think that they are primarily telling their patients most of your problems come from 
America's racism and, and bigotry. No, they are working with their patients to help make them more adaptive, more resilient in life. They're not focusing on public policy when they conduct therapy sessions. And you have to, th- this, is, this is my overarching point. You have to have a touchstone, a guide in order to get through it. A, to just be a happy functioning person and to be a... Right. Okay, it helps to have a guide. Your guide might be a secular leftist, right? There are a lot of secular leftists out there who can be fantastic guides in, in many areas of life. Uh, it helps to have, have books. It helps to have tools and principles, uh, meetings, community. Yeah, so you can get these things in religion. You can get these things in 12-step. You can get these things in all sorts of different communities. Right. To be a principled person. You can't just try, as much as you may want to, you can't just navigate through life on your own. That's why you need Judeo-Christian values. This book is just is an advert. Uh, Judeo-Christian values will help some people navigate life more effectively, and for many people, it will lead them to navigate life less effectively, and for most people, it won't have that dramatic effect. So uh, I'm just thinking about what what a distorted perspective on life that the, the news gives, right? Pretty much everyone who criticized civil rights legislation Criticize the legality of it, criticize the morality of it, criticize the effect of it was right, right? The, the sharpest observers of civil rights legislation were right, and yet they receive zero positive coverage in the news media. There are zero movies celebrating them. I'm not aware of any novels celebrating them. They get no positive news coverage, right? Everyone in the news who's talking about Ukraine, all right, in, in, from, from a position of authority, is you know pro-American intervention in Ukraine, which is absolutely disastrous. It's a horrible thing for America. It's a horrible thing for Ukraine. It's a horrible thing for, for Europe. But only those who tow the U.S. foreign policy foreign policy establishment line that we you know we need to be fighting Russia effectively through Ukraine, risking World War III and a nuclear exchange, right? Only those people get positive news coverage. The people who are right about Ukraine, saying that we should not be arming Ukraine. They don't get any positive news coverage. Think about the lead up to the Afghan invasion and the Iraq invasion. So Afghan invasion occurred in 2001. The Iraq invasion occurred in 2003. Everyone who is promoting those invasions and then the occupations, right, they were proven to be very, very wrong. All those who were opposing those invasions have proved to be right. But none of those who have been right have benefited. Right? There are not glowing articles about them. They haven't climbed in social status. They're not getting laid or paid because they were right. And the people who were wrong promoting the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq, they paid no price. They just keep going on. Right? So that's the, the way the world works. There's no necessary uh, justice in this world, particularly with, with regard to the news. And I'm just thinking about uh, this, I'm rereading The Age of Entitlement by Christopher Caldwell. What, what an amazing book. And supposedly the reason that we needed to junk the Constitution that we had in the 18th century and replace it with civil rights legislation is because so many Americans were really racist. But uh, think about when the Irish came to America in large numbers. They initially faced discrimination. Why did they face discrimination? Because they had higher than average murder rates. They had higher than average rape rates. They had higher than average antisocial behavior. And what happened when Irish immigrants to America assimilated into American ways? Discrimination against them disappeared. All right, right now, 
American white women go to Home Depot and they pick up illegal Mexican immigrants and bring them home and hire them and pay them and often feed them and give them drink with very little fear that these illegal immigrants will commit a a crime against them. Now, why do they feel safe doing that? Because overall, Latinos have only mildly higher crime rates, moderately higher crime rates than white Americans. Now, if your group is committing crime rates at approximately the same rate as the majority or just moderately higher, you're not going to be facing a ton of discrimination, right? Group stereotypes are usually pretty accurate. Now, I'm thinking about one sacred group you're not allowed to criticize by name, right? As long as we've been keeping murder statistics in the United States, this group has been committing murder at six to eight times the, the rate of other Americans. So as long as your group is committing astronomical rates of murder, is taking in astronomical amounts of welfare payments, has astronomically low educational and career achievement, right? has massive social dysfunction, ha- has you know, massive family dysfunction. As long as that's going on, there's going to be you know, a ton of discrimination because discrimination kind of makes sense. Right? And uh, LGBTQ groups chanting that they're coming for your children. Right? Uh, but what do you think would be a wise response to that? Attorney General is now blocking schools from notifying parents if their child is switching genders. Now, meanwhile, parents in Maryland and the suburbs there, Washington, D.C., are protesting far-left indoctrination in their kids' classrooms. And in New York City, during a recent Pride Parade, video surfaced of participants actually chanting, we are coming for your children. Take a look. Okay, so homosexuals can't reproduce through heterosexual sex. Generally speaking, that's not congenial to them. How do they reproduce? By recruiting. We are coming for your children. Now, activists are claiming, after the fact, that the chants were only meant as a joke. Anyone in this audience can tell me what that punchline is? I don't see the joke in it. Uh, Obviously, woke culture is corroding our public institutions. What can you as parents, the American people, do to right the ship? How about they leave our kids alone and leave parenting to moms and dads and let them instill values in their kids? Anyway. So instead of massive you know, civil rights legislation, we could have simply had work going on. Glenn Youngkin, I would really like him. Here he is on Hannity. I'd really like him to run for president. I think he'd be uh, a winner, and I think he'd be a, you know, a good president. All right, so... Stating all sorts of obvious truths, such as we should not be sending arms into Ukraine, promoting World War III with Russia in Europe, uh, opposing the Afghan and Iraq invasions, uh, pointing out that it's disturbing that all these gay groups going around saying we're coming for your children, that that's a bad thing, all right? And uh, saying that civil rights legislation has overwhelmingly been a disaster for this country. Stating all sorts of obvious truths will... You know, result in you know very negative consequences to you in in public life. All right, you're not going to get any positive or even fair portrayal in the news media for just stating these obvious truths. I mean, if you're a a Christian, right? If you're a fair dinkum Christian, you're a fair dinkum Jew, right? You got to be opposed to homosexual sex, right? You're going to be anti-gay, right? 
So to the extent that you're not anti-gay, you're not fed income to Christianity or Judaism. If you are into the gay sex, you have got to be anti-Christian and anti-Judaism because those two religions are quite negative about uh, men having sex with men in particular. You know, if you are for private property, if you are for freedom of association, if you would like your daughter to be discriminating, if you would like to be discriminating in your choices, if you would like your grandma to be discriminating with whom she rents out a room, right, then you've got to be opposed to civil rights legislation, right? If you want to be selective with whom you reproduce and, and have kids, right, then you're practicing eugenics. I know. Oh, scary. Just a terrible, terrible term. But uh, this Age of Entitlement by Christopher Cordwell is just a, a fantastic book. I mean, in the 1960s, we, we launched the moral equivalent of war on discrimination, right? Which is insane. Discrimination's a, a good thing. We had the war on poverty in the 1960s. We had the war on drugs in the 1980s and 90s. But they were both battlefronts in the larger struggle over race relations. We've completely reinterpreted America's entire history and purpose and reason for being in light of America's race issues, right? Now, the strong take what they want, the weak endure what they must. There's no reason for America or any country to feel guilty about you know, engaging in slavery in the past. Right? That's just the nature of power. The United States has treated the rest of America like a bitch for as long as it's been able to because the strong you know, dominate and take what they want and the weak endure what they must. So what Russia is trying to do to Ukraine right now, Russia is just simply trying to enact its own Monroe Doctrine over Ukraine, just as the United States has enacted its Monroe Doctrine with regard to the rest of America. The rest of the Americas have to you know, be subservient to what the United States wants because the United States is the most powerful nation and they will hurt you, they will invade you, they will wreck you if you don't go along with the Monroe Doctrine, just like Russia is wrecking Ukraine because Ukraine won't go along with Russia's Monroe Doctrine. So there's a legal scholar, Derek Bell, he described a quarter century after the Supreme Court's school des desegregation decision in Brown versus Board of Education as the greatest racial consciousness raising the country has ever known. <laughs> and this racial consciousness raising has only intensified since. I, I mean, race is the part of the human experience in which American school children are most painstakingly instructed. Right? Their studies of math, of literature, of war, of civics are all subordinated to a certain study of race. I mean, race has been invested with religious significance. It's become an ethical absolute. Right? The civil rights movement has become the founding dominant institution in this country. It's analogous to established churches in pre-democratic Europe. Right? The United States government has sought to mold the whole of society down to the most intimate private acts around this new ideology of anti-racism. By the way, I was also thinking about the dialogue between the suitor and the suited yeah. here. Yeah, mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine a couple speaking like that today, which is sad. You would. Right. No, it, it, I mean, of course, you're ta of course, the diction would be totally different, but even the sentiment. So you're right. I'm, couples uh, yeah. don't discuss that. Have I ever tried Spanish fly? No, I've never, I've never tried drugging anyone. <laughs> and I never would. Right. Hey, folks, we are delighted to announce Dennis's next listener cruise with our friends at Coke. Whoa. 
Exciting. So your next date, which I should ask the guy is, so I'm curious, have you risen above your circumstances? Are you superior to your circumstance? <laughs> okay. That would be fun. I'll, I'll tell you a funny thing. It shows you how much this book has come into my life. So my roommate and I were shopping the other day for clothes and jewelry, and we came across this pair of earrings. And we were looking at them, and I tried them on, and I'm looking at them in the mirror, and I go, totally straight-faced. I didn't even realize how absurd I sounded. Totally uh, dead serious. I go, you know, my mom almost bought me earrings like this, but then we judged them too old-looking for my young countenance. That's hilarious. <laughs> she looked at me like, are you okay? So you're starting to speak like I'm starting to like speak like Charlotte Bronte. Yes. We judged it too old looking for my young countenance. She's like, okay, we got to get you off of this book. That's great. It's, it's almost like after doing my Bible commentary, I'm tempted to say, how art thou? Oh, of course. Said, how are you? Said, how are you? <laughs> okay, I'll give you one other line. One other, yeah. I promise, and then I'll be done. But it's but it's, it's on the subject. So if on a date, a guy said to you, you know, I, I just finished Jane Eyre. Oh, you, where's, you, the, where's the altar? That's right. That's no, gentlemen who, can you imagine? who are looking to marry Julie, of whom there are... Multitudes? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Oh, are. I'm sure there are. Oh, okay. okay. All right. well, you, you can you're believe. delusional. I'm not, okay, maybe you are. One of us might be. Well, we, we both might be. No, you but, are. No, no, we, no, no, I'm not. You are a very desirable woman. I know this means nothing to you. Thank you. Okay, That's fine. very nice. Thank you. That's very nice. Yeah. Okay, so Rochester. But anyway, I, I just want to say, I, I, I would almost try to arrange it. <laughs> That's some guy. I would say, just, just say, you know. I'm just curious, Julie. Have you read Jane Eyre? Oh my God, I would fall over. Of course, exactly. you know what's sad? I wouldn't even conceive that that would happen. Right. I don't even. No, you would, of course know that, that would never so Dennis put you up to this. That's what your reaction would be. <laughs> By the way, I was thinking you should come on the next date I'm on and just sit at the next table I and would, listen. I, <laughs> it, I am not at all a nosy person. That's just not my nature. But I would do anything to do that. I know you would, but they would be like, "That's Dennis Baker at the next oh, table. Yeah, don't you have a issue. show with him?" That is an issue. Okay. Okay. Finally, and then and then I promise I'll I'll go find someone else to talk about Jane Eyre with. I would stop a stranger on the street to talk about this book. Right. Remorse is the poison of life. Rochester says to Jane. Jane says repentance is said to be its cure, sir. And then then Mr. Rochester starts going into the spiral of well, basically it's too late for me in life to to repent or to reform myself. He's he's kind of um, in a slump before he meets Jane, and Jane with her Judeo Christian values pulls Rochester out of his slump. He says because I can I, I can assure you that uh, Jane Eyre does not have uh, Judeo Christian values. Right. Uh, it, to the extent that she's influenced by religion, it will be Christianity. Happiness has been denied to me. I have a right to get pleasure out of life. I highlighted that. That is that's the, that's the leftist mantra. Happiness has been denied to me. I have a right to get pleasure out of life. It's what we were talking about earlier. Have no have no responsibility to anyone but yourself. Well, that that was my way of thinking when I recovered partially from six years of chronic fatigue syndrome. It's like from 21 to 27, I was basically bedridden and I came out of that. I tried to seize all the sexual pleasure in particular that I could, and I was not, uh, it's not always a gentleman. I was pretty selfish and self-centered and just tried to seize all the pleasure out of life. I just felt like, I'm owed, man. I've been in bed for six years. I've been six for six years. You know, life has been passing me by. I'm owed. I started spending recklessly, uh, behaving recklessly, just, you know, trying to grab as much as I could. Did not turn out to be a particularly winning strategy. You know what Jane responds? Then you will denigrate yourself more, sir. You know what he says? Possibly. Yet why should I if I can get sweet, flesh, fresh pleasure? And I may get it as sweet and fresh as the wild honey the bee gathers on the moor. You know what Jane says? It will sting. It will taste bitter, sir. I love this. This is just, this is, I wrote in the margin, classic debate. Why would you reform yourself? Why not be? There would be plenty of uh, secular women, uh, less religious or more religious women who would have this kind of wisdom. So this is not just the, the province of religious women. Uh, religion can be an aid, can help some people attain this level of clarity. Become a hedonist if life so has given you a bad lot. why did she fall in love with this guy with those views? Because I think she sees potential in him. I think uh, she's... Women do that all the time. It's a big mistake. <laughs> really? Yes. 
Okay. All right, you got to read the the Age of Entitlement. Just uh, amazing book by Christopher Caldwell. So talks about one historian described the 20th century civil rights movement as a second reconstruction, right? <laughs> First reconstruction after the Civil War did not go too well. So what was innovative about the reformers of the 1960s, right, the activists pushing civil rights, is that they weren't particularly moral, nor were they particularly wise, right? Uh, they wrecked the country, but uh, what made these modern framers of civil rights, you know, different from their 19th century forebears? Well, they succeeded where their 19th century forebears had failed because they were confident in resorting to coercion. They were absolutely indifferent in imposing massive financial and social and cultural burdens on future generations. They were willing to upend the country, diminish all sorts of other rights, replace effectively the constitution with a new constitution. Right, and they were willing to reduce all sorts of other constitutional freedoms, uh, trash social solidarity, social cohesion, and social trust. And they were absolutely pitiless with regard to their opponents. Right, with with civil rights legislation, they had permanent emergency powers to smash anyone or anything in their way, and. They were powered by surveillance from volunteers, litigation by lawyers, enforcement by bureaucrats. We got a whole new model of federal government. Right? All that stuff about separation of powers, right? Uh, that was trashed by civil rights law. Right? The United States today is a free country in a very different sense than it was between the administrations of George Washington and John F. Kennedy. Right? Brown versus the Board of Education, 1954. Right? That was a landmark decision that marked the beginning of the end of our traditional freedom, such as freedom of association. And this landmark ruling, right, it was brief, didn't have footnotes, didn't have case references, ran about the length of a newspaper column. It was less a judicial argument than a judicial order, just like when the U.S. Supreme Court made gay marriage the rule of the land, right? They didn't have a logical or legal basis to do so. The Supreme Court, with Brown versus the Board of Education, they completely ignored the subject to which they had devoted their deliberations, whether the 14th Amendment, drafted in the wake of civil war to guarantee equal protection, was intended to permit segregated schools. Instead, they just asked whether the doctrine of separate but equal used to justify school segregation was even possible in practice. Right? Now, they, they did believe it was possible. But the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People were very effective at getting what they wanted. And they managed to get the Supreme Court to sign on with repudiating separate but equal doctrine. And uh, even the most ardent opponents of segregation were troubled by the Supreme Court's ruling and their rewriting of the Constitution on the authority of some vague pronouncement about the way the things are usually interpreted. So in 1959, there was this Harvard law professor, guy on the right, a uh, guy on the left, Herbert Wexler, he described Brown versus the Board of Education as an opinion which is often read with less fidelity by those who praise it than by those by whom it is condemned. <laughs> right? So that's the most complicated way of saying that it was a terrible, terrible U.S. Supreme Court decision like Roe v. Raid, like the Oberfeld decision making gay marriage the law of the land. 
So Brown would have been impossible under any faithful reading of what the drafters of the 14th Amendment had meant by equality. Right? The Brown justices blundered when they focused on equality in the first place. Part of the matter with segregation was not equality, but the conflicts it created with the implicit First Amendment right of freedom of association. So if the freedom of association is denied by segregation, integration forces an association upon those for whom it is unpleasant or repugnant. So given a situation where the state must choose between denying the association to those individuals who wish it or imposing it on those who would avoid it, is there a basis in neutral principles for holding the Constitution demands that the claims for association should prevail? He hoped to find such a basis, but in constitutional terms, Brown versus the Board of Education was arbitrary, it was open-ended, it gave the government the authority to put much of public life and public bodies under surveillance for an amorphous thing like racism. The the damage it aimed to men consisted of intangible considerations, so there became absolutely no obvious limit to government surveillance of our lives. And so now we've got the Civil Rights Act introduced into the private sector, right? All separation is now prima facie evidence of inequality. Desegregation means that you had to revoke all our old freedoms, such as freedom of association. And uh, philosopher Leo Strauss warned that these attempts to root out discrimination would backfire badly. He said that uh, minorities, particularly Jews, would get into trouble here because there are dangers of the government intervening. Liberal society, he said, stands or falls by the distinction between the political, the state, and society, the distinction between the public and the private. With massive civil rights legislation, this distinction between the public and private has been massively reduced. So in liberal society, there is necessarily a private sphere with which the state's legislation must not interfere. Liberal society makes possible, permits, and fosters what is called by many people discrimination. This is the essence of in-group identity. It's the essence of any sort of meaningful community. You have to discriminate. It's the essence of any honorable, upstanding life. So to attack this kind of discrimination at its root the the cure is going to wor- wind up worse than the disease, Leo Strauss warned. So the prohibition against every discrimination will mean the abolition of the private sphere, the denial of the difference between the state and society, in a word, the destruction of liberal society. And that's what's happened. We've had a destruction of social trust and social cohesion due to the massive onslaught of civil rights legislation, which was launched in 1964. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.